Hey guys, welcome to episode 10 of The Delta, uh, brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. And I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Stefan Michel. Um, Stefan and I are going to be talking about panic and the pragmatist response to that panic. And uh, we're going to be talking in some detail about where we are. Uh, but as I always do, let me just give you a little bit of context on where we are in terms of iTrax crossover. It's very hard to tell you exactly where iTrax crossover is right now uh, because it's traded in a very, very wide range today. Uh, we have traded in more than 100 basis point range between 500 and 600 today, and that's really unprecedented, and particularly unprecedented because the last time we spoke to you, iTrax crossover was trading just wide of 200 basis points. Um, just to pause and, and rewind back a little bit to episode nine, which was brought to you live uh, last time round. And we're just going to hear a little bit of episode nine in order to contextualize where we are today and to give you some kind of flavor of how far things have moved. Markets are telling us something completely different. Markets are telling us that everything is absolutely perfect or near perfect. Uh, iTrax crossover, which we always quote on, on the podcast, is about 207 basis points as of the close last night, which is about nine basis points away from the historical tights. Um, we touched new highs on all equity markets over the last week. So, Tommaso, maybe just pointing back to you, what, what the hell's going on? Where's the historical precedent for this? The name of the game is excess liquidity. That means the money growth versus nominal GDP. The key here is that the, the market reaction function to what policymakers are doing has been perfected for over 10 years. Mm. It's very efficient. So if you look at the, the past 100 years, there have been 19 cases of the S&P losing more than 18%. And on average, it took the market 280 days to recoup the loss, median 200 days. Um, in 2019, it took only 80 days. That's the third fastest in the history. Wow. Okay, so welcome, Stefan. Thank you uh, very much for joining us today. And, and we, on the live episode, episode nine, we said that we were going to sort of delve into the brain of Stefan Michel and try and find things that, you know, as credit market participants, we might be able to look forward to in terms of some volatility. So, you know, that's the backdrop. Well, um, thanks for uh, having me. As as you know, uh, some some firms have warriors in chief. I am the warrior in chief, and that's why you had opted to have me on here. We couldn't find something to worry about, and we were thinking that possibly um, markets were too tight, but we couldn't identify what would be the catalyst. When I started thinking about um, things to look for and 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 um, you know topics to discuss here, I remember thinking that it was Friday the thirteenth, and I was trying to think about uh, you know a story about that and then I had to try pr practicing to repeat triskaidekaphobia many times which is the fear <laughs> of the number 13 I thought that was going to be my biggest challenge uh, in the last two weeks everything's changed and and obviously uh, we're here not having to talk about not the potential worries but uh, how to deal with the existing one yeah so so we find ourselves here a couple of weeks after pretty much the all-time highs on the S&P and the all-time tights on on iTrax crossover and um, yeah, there's been a COVID-19 outbreak. The world appears to have stopped turning at least briefly. And um, you know, maybe 
just give us a bit of context of where you think we are, what have we seen over the last couple of weeks and, and what have been the catalysts to bring us here? Sure. So the um, you know the place everyone likes to talk about is the equity markets, and we've seen the S and P down twenty seven percent. And I'm, as we're talking, obviously it's probably moving up and down by many percent of the volatility of these days. But um, as, as we were um, leaving the building, that's where we were. The Hang Seng was down seventeen percent, Nikkei down twenty eight percent, FTSE down twenty six percent. So very meaningful, very short term moves. Uh, the other interesting bit is that the VIX has, uh, as, as uh, you know, you like to, to quote often, the VIX has really spiked from 14 at the low to 75, and it's stabilized a bit from here. But even so, a, a dramatic move, almost quite to the 89 high of the uh, of the crisis. The um, it, Italian stock markets even uh, you know suffered more given the uh, the intensity of the uh, the, the virus outbreak uh, there. So. That's that's the equity markets. If you look at crossover, we went from 200 to 600, now back around 500. Main uh, has also nearly tripled. Oil was actually, interestingly enough, oil was already feeling the pain before this This really took the, the big leg down. So uh, it started the year at around 60, fell to um, just below 50 before the OPEC spat and then had its final capitulation. Yeah, it's been... It's been really interesting watching this week's price action versus last week's price action. I think, you know, some of what we were seeing last week felt fairly rational. Uh, some of what we were seeing last week um, felt like it was reasonably orderly. And I think that many people were going into the weekend last weekend hoping that OPEC was going to help us. Um, that clearly wasn't the the case uh Friday we went home thinking OPEC would would come to the rescue and obviously we've had a, a bit of a spat between Saudi Arabia and Russia is that really why this week has been so bad or are there are there other things that are affecting the price action I think um, it, it all starts from where where we came from uh, we were you know in credit super tight and equity super high uh, valuations were stretched um, there's been uh, time and time again, uh, in, with the uh, easing and and the general policies, that this the sentiment is always that um, if even if there's a, a blip, you just you just buy the dip and everything's going to be okay. So so people felt comfortable uh, seeking uh, more risk at, even at those at those levels. Um, so I think the you know the, the origin uh, of the of the um, yeah, you know the starting point of, of where spreads move from is, is important. Then you actually have the the, the news flow, the, the real things that happen, and and uh, coronavirus uh, was um, you know to be expected, but somehow it still surprised us all that that it actually broke borders and started uh, going through the world uh, at um, and at some significant concentrations in certain places, which were also uh, I think to a certain extent. Um, idiosyncratic and people were thinking that it could just remain a weird situation where they hit that particular country. But then when it reached uh, you know, Italy and, 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 and then Italy went into quarantine, I think that was a big wake-up moment which, which fueled uh, this particular drop. And then we were looking for help. Uh, and the help was at first uh, hoping that the... Um, you know that the Fed was going to help, uh, which they did, but that that just got battered away fairly quickly. And then hoping that uh, OPEC would circle up the the wagons and and kind of defend uh, oil prices. And for reasons that remain to be fully understood and explained, they decided to go the exact opposite way. So, so that that um, uh, level of protection that the market was hoping for certainly didn't come from from OPEC. And that's when that's when all all hell broke loose, really. 
Yeah, for me, two two things to to really sort of zoom in on in terms of what you said there. First, I think it is very important for our listeners to recognise that we're both of the view that the starting point was essential in terms of determining the velocity of this move and the volatility subsequent, that people have been conditioned to buy every single dip, that you know we were already feeling mildly, if not acutely bearish, depending on who you spoke to around the desk. And then the, the second thing, I guess, is the fact that we've become conditioned to think that central banks can resolve every single issue through either cutting rates or some um, different breed of quantitative easing. And I think there's been a lot of talk over the last few days, as we've seen the price action on Monday, and then again, the price action yesterday, which felt fairly cataclysmic, that um, people are shrugging off the activity. And they did that 50 basis points of the Fed. But the ECB, you know, got out the big bazooka yesterday and, and uh, Christine Lagarde, her first, mm-hmm. bless her, her first press conference, had a really torrid time of it and the market really didn't like the fact she wasn't cutting rates. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's just one quick point to go back on the, the starting point of, of, this, of spread levels and equity levels, uh, and I'm sure we'll come on to this uh, later, but, you know, it also explains why things may not be so cheap yet. Because there's been a huge move, but we came from very far. Yeah. Um, so, so we have a lot further to go. Possibly, if you want to go back to the cheapness of of crisis times, for example. So, um, but I just I just want to throw that in. But we'll we'll come back to it later. Um, yeah. So I think, in terms of price action and, and what you've seen from from the uh, you know, the market reaction, that that time where you know the traders are coming in, everyone's coming in. The the, the news flow is bad enough. The, um, the no one knows where the levels are, are going to be. And then uh, you look at your portfolio and you think that you look at th- there's things that you know you should be dealing with uh, and then you know that you basically probably can't at levels that are remotely close to where you'd like it to be and then it probably would be at a price that you think is way too cheap, uh, at least given today's fundamentals, and you convince yourself to move on to something else. And then so you go from the things you should do to the things you want to do. And those things are things that have not moved as much uh, as as you think they probably should. But when you come to try and sell them, you realize it's actually going to become part of that first category. It's the, the bid offer is just too too vast. Um, and so what you want to do, once again, you start thinking maybe not. So then you go to the things that you can do. And the things that you can do is the price action we, we saw once the move started. And that's why you got these huge uh, major moves, but in the most liquid instruments. It was really index-driven. Uh, and that's that's what was, uh, for, for me, the big the big signal that we were dealing with uh, a complete lack of liquidity and, and, and uh, a lot of concerned participants not really quite sure what to do next. Yeah, I mean, I hate to sound like we're two grumpy old men, which <laughs> most people who know us know we are, um, but it did feel like there were a lot of people learning for the first time what it felt like to be in relatively volatile markets. But the big difference for me between the price action that we saw on a number of occasions in 2008 and then again in that third quarter of 2011, which was also incredibly volatile, is the absence of market makers. And as credit market participants, that absence of market makers is is very, very challenging because you're really always looking for somebody to take the other side of the trade, whether it's a bid you're looking to hit or an offer you're looking to lift, you need somebody on the other side because nobody is going to hold positions. None of the banks any longer want to hold positions more than one, one and a half million. 
where does what how does that figure into this how much has that been part of credit and how much of it is more the traditional fear and loathing that we have and and the uncertainty in credit well so so i think that the lack of um yeah middle middle person to to transact and actually warehouse risk uh, and find the level uh, is is critical and that's unfortunately one of the uh, maybe unintended consequences of the crisis is that the system is de-risked at these central points, uh, but it means that the volatility is much greater because um, there used to be someone in the middle who was trying to guide the market on both sides to where things might clear. And now uh, that, that, that liquidity is missing. Uh, so I think that's why we're experiencing such huge um, spikes in volatility. And you, and you see every day, I mean, I remember in, in the crisis, there were big swings and, and, and it was uh, literally you know, you could have a huge spike and, and have an opposite reaction the next day, but it, this seems more volatile and more violent uh, than than at those times. So I, I think that's definitely an issue. I think the other thing here is that um, nobody really knows what we're looking at. Uh, and that's, the, that's the, the key for me with the whole COVID-19 thing is it's, it's unprecedented, uh, you know, People have models, but they're not really models because the the, uh, the assumptions are are, are so um, you know variable, and you, you can just make up any any change you want, and the, the the difference in outcome is vast, and and no one really understands what what we're dealing with. The other thing is, I would say, no one has confidence that the numbers we're dealing with are accurate either. Um, some of them arrive late. Some of them give you an impression that things are worse or better because testing has been done more of or less often. Uh, and then there's, the other thing is that there, there seem to be some very different uh, levels of, of mortality, for example, where you just think that there must be either a different input uh, and there may be some, some reasons why a specific uh, country has a different mortality rate or there must be just a different number of tests being done or something. So all of those things mean that we don't, we don't know what we're staring at. And uh, as you and I discussed the other day, one thing credit people hate is uncertainty. Yep. Um, and, you know, I guess on the equity side, at least you're going to get, you know, multiple levels of upside if you get it right and you catch the falling knife. Uh, we just get coupon. Yep. Uh, and that coupon with rates being <laughs> negative, uh, et cetera, is just not that exciting uh, to, to kind of leap in at, at, at the first opportunity. So I think that's also on a price basis possibly why people didn't step up as quickly as perhaps you would have expected because it moved a lot, but it was still pretty pretty close to par. So that's not that c compelling. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening who are uh, non-credit market participants, and, and I'm sure some of you are non-credit market participants, um, for us, we, we normally like to shrug small moves off um, um, because we have equity below us. We have some protection from those equity guys. Um, but this is really starting to hit the territory where the combination of severity and lack of certainty means that we have to contemplate um, credit being affected, particularly for energy names. Energy is obviously one of the sectors which is right in the in the sweet spot here. Um, but I think that one of the really big challenges for all of us is that our models used to think about EBITDA down by 15% or EBITDA down by 20% or in extremes, maybe EBITDA down by 50%. But very few models contemplate negative EBITDAs and can't compute what the leverage might look like a year from now on on many of these companies where you know profitability is 
is gone for the first quarter and you know cash flow looks acutely negative for a while where do, where do we find ourselves are we are we in com- completely new territory here yeah uh, the first assumption that we usually make is that people are allowed to open their business all the all the things that are going to be quarantined and shut down it's not a question of of a reduction in ebitda it's just there there is no revenues even yep um and and so that's something we haven't really had to deal with before and trying to understand that um so you can get into the you know the very obvious first level impacts of those businesses that are shut uh then there are the businesses who possibly could open uh but may not have the workforce or may not have the, the you know the demand shock will start filtering down to them and then you want to start thinking about um the flexibility of the business you go back to uh really trying to avoid very thin operating margins on very high cost bases uh where the, the you know in 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 good times operating high operating leverage is a good thing but when you have a shock like this then uh having a complete lack of flexibility in your fixed cost and being exposed to uh, no revenues is is obviously um uh could could be lethal so so zoom in on that for me for a second um let's give our listeners some some sort of takeaways where do we think those very thin uh, margins are or what sectors should we be uh looking at where where are you starting to feel most uncomfortable and you know in order that we stick to one of our ground rules which is not to leave uh, our listeners feeling miserable after any of the podcasts let's give them some things that we think maybe uh the opposite uh, where there might be a, a level of resilience obviously something like an airline's got a huge cost base pretty thin margins most of the time uh, and uh those those would be the first place to to look at those types of businesses the cruise ships you know the the ones that everyone's been talking about um you can also think well uh, a food retailer operates on very thin margins and the important thing there is that um if you're not no longer allowed to go to to the store those those businesses will thrive if they have a developed online platform and if you think about what people are doing in this country for example there are some very developed online platforms and then there are some others that just aren't and i think you should look at those for for weakness uh going forward um and and you you um you will get to the point where you know manufacturing sectors and you know chemicals and whichever whatever is exposed to the more cyclical side of things and less specialty will get impacted first if this is protracted so this is the important thing right now um I think the market's reacting as if this is going to be around for quite a while. If you look at the numbers from China and you assume that the numbers are correct, then having taken the measures they've taken, there's there's been very few cases uh taking place now on on a daily basis. And that's just, you know, let's just call it 2 months. So if we can get to that 2 months point in in the other, you know, developed market, the thing is I really think this is going to be not a snap back to the previous levels but a much more a longer protracted uh, uh pattern which will look more like a u than a v uh, you can of course get into all the conversations that you know it could completely collapse and just be an i or or never come back up and be an l but i actually think it will be a u but the u is really made of lots of little w's in its shape yeah so as we as we let's let's stop pause there for a second let's remember where we are we're at let's say 500 basis points you're being paid uh which is 5% for lending to a high yield corporate whether that be in Europe or the US on average um you're not getting very much from your risk free which sits underneath that in fact in Europe you're getting nothing and in the US you're getting close to nothing as well so you're getting roughly 5% 
At what point would you feel like this has just gone absolutely miles too far? Um, that's a lovely question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think um, I can't tell where it's going to be determined to be cheap without knowing what's happening in the technicals in the market. So right now, for example, we're seeing uh, finally, it seems like the level loan market is having BWICs after BWICs. Uh, warehouses are being shut. Um, and I, I want to see that clear before I feel like we, we were going to find a, a bottom. It's not the, the level is one aspect, and there's going to be a level at some point. There's an as, there's a level where you think I just have to own it. Doesn't matter what happens next because I'm so happy with that level. I'm happy to wear another five points of downside. I, I may not get the liquidity to buy it at the at the very low. I, we're definitely not there yet. So yeah. if, for me to say this is getting attractive, then I have to feel like all the marginal sellers have been cleared. And there just haven't been enough taps on the shoulders for me at this point. It just feels like there's still people wearing positions they don't really want to have. That's absolutely critical for our listeners to hear that and understand that. At these levels, you're saying we're not quite at the point where I just think I don't care what happens from here. I'm happy to own it because three years from now, this is going to look like a trade no matter what. And therefore, if we're in this middle ground, we have to wait and understand what the technicals are. We have to wait and see capitulation. We need to see blood in the water. And then we can start to feel like we should get back involved. And sorry to talk in such you know, terms when we're talking about what is a human crisis. And a, a, you know, we have to address the concerns of our investors. So you're saying at this point, it's not over. And we're in that middle ground. And actually, the technicals are not pointing to this being done. So let's zoom in on what's happened central bank wise. We've had pretty much every central bank around the world and a few governments taking action, some of them taking, you know, really material action. Where can they go further? Yeah, and I, I um, so, so I think the, the weapons they have, they've used already and they're a bit spent. Um, so for, for me, the central banks were expected to do something just to provide that level of comfort and and almost a, a reassurance to the market. And the 50 bips from the Fed didn't work. Um, for me, the solution here is different. This requires uh, a, a global response, coordinated response about doing things that governments should be doing uh, on the streets, uh, in, in the healthcare, uh, in spending, in taking care of their industries whilst there's a crisis. That's the signals I'm looking for, not basis points. Basis points don't save lives or industries. Mm. Uh, this is about real tangible actions, is that we entered the, the, the financial crisis with a pretty cohesive world at the global level and at the social level. We're entering this in, in my lifetime that I haven't felt like this uh, for for 30 plus years of, of having... Uh, you know, so much tension, uh, geopolitical tension. Uh, the 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 adults don't seem to be at the table to actually make the difficult decisions. Uh, and and then if you look at a more um, you know local level, it's you equally have uh, this very antagonistic populist. Uh, for me, this this could be a, a, a an exercise that makes the world realize that we actually. Uh, can't function the way we've been functioning for the last uh, few years and that we need to go back to a more uh, coordinated and a more um, uh, co collaborative stance uh, at the global and uh, national and local level. So I think 
in sort of summarizing what we've said, um, don't forget where we were mm-hmm. uh, in trying to explain why we've moved so far. Uh, we as credit market participants hate uncertainty, and this is still very, very uncertain. Um, what are you looking for? You're looking for more clarity, more honesty, more openness from central banks and governments around the world, and that that you think will, will help us and help us not only to sort of find a level, but to to fight back against this thing. And and I guess the other thing that I would really try and emphasise is the response to the question about is this the time to get stuck in? You were saying it's absolutely not a slam dunk that you should get stuck in, and we need to watch the technicals. Um, in order to... Um, it's a time to be active. There's so many opportunities. You need to be active, but yeah. you don't need to be long. Yeah. And, and you know, people will sell stuff to you mm. at prices that you're happy to take it at, um, but wait for that to arrive, I guess, is, is what you're saying. Okay, I'm going to come back to you in a second. Um, in all options on the table, um, we had uh, in episode seven of Delta, we focused on ESG integration and we had a response and asked what is the best form of ESG research. I think, you know, for me, and I love to hear your views on on this, Stefan, I think ESG research is is still developing and evolving. There, there is no right way in which to do ESG research. But I think ESG research at its, at its heart needs to be based on on facts. And that's where I think that what we've tried to do uh, at Federated Hermes with a number of other market participants is develop a, a framework by which we can have a, a language to talk about these things. And I think that language is very, very powerful for us as investors, but also for um, borrowers who are, who are you know, the other side of, of the transactions that we're, we're working on. So the EU taxonomy, I'd call out as something that I think is really, really helpful. I would also recommend um, the UN SDGs. The UN SDGs are a really, really nice way to get uh, around what the things are that ESG is trying to achieve, what we're really focused on here. And then, of course, I think much of our research is very high quality. And, you know, I I would point to some of the things that our equities colleagues have done. uh, But I think maybe the best answer to Jim is give us a call, come in. Anything that I should have added to that, Stefan, in terms of ESG research? Um, ESG for me is always so closely aligned to credit um, because making the right ESG calls makes you make the right credit call. So uh, I think they're fully integrated. So the more, the better. Um, so I'm going to close by uh, just asking you one last question, which is about the asset class that you love the most right now. Hasn't always been the asset class you love the most. Um, and to give us just your 30-second thought on what's happening in structured credit. Last time round, when you and I sat opposite sides of the desk back in 2007 and early parts of 2008, structured credit was really leading us on the way down. Where is it this time round? Um, I, I think it's very different this time around uh, in, in the sense that it, since it was uh, the, the nucleus of the problem last time, so much has been done to make sure that it's um, more robust, uh, that it's, uh, you know, that investors have to do their homework. So there's uh, European regulations on that, uh, that the issuers have to be uh, at risk for uh, some of the collateral that they've put into the transactions uh, in Europe, at least. So that the uh, the structures also are less levered. There's a lot more buffer at the bottom, uh, and in general, it's a um, you know it's a slightly um, it it's an improved instrument over what it was uh, in the crisis. But even if you look at the detail of the crisis, 
there, it, it gets a very bad name for a performance that it's, that's not warranted. So if you look at European CLOs, they actually perform very well. Uh, if, if you look at, um, you know, triple A's and CLOs, you've got 40%, let's call it, of, of subordination underneath you. Uh, it, it requires something quite severe to, to uh, really impact those tranches. Uh, and, and they are pricing uh, quite attractively and will probably get more attractive still. So that's, that's places we're definitely looking for, for value. Great. Well, thank you very much, Stefan, uh, for joining us today. Um, and thank you very much to the listeners. Uh, good luck out there. It's not easy in these markets. Uh, we've tried to bring you our perspective and tried to be as rational as we pros- possibly can. Almost certainly we won't be at these levels when we speak to you next time. Um, so we're closing at roughly 500 on crossover and we'll speak to you on episode 11. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.